I just, I see personally anything that talks about, we're going to make the game harder. We're going to make it harder for people to see improvement is a potential disaster. And I think that viewpoint's probably shared by most where I don't think equipment sales or, or golf ball sales even would decrease at large one bit if there was a different standard for the professional tours. I'm Roberto, professional golfer and wannabe business guy. And I'm Dan, business guy and wannabe golfer. We met in college in a boring engineering class, made a connection through golf, and have been kicking around ideas on the business of golf ever since. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest folks in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. This episode of the Course Record Show is brought to you by Good Walk Coffee. Dan, we both have young kids at home, and Lord knows they do not ease into the day. And that leaves no room for anything but a great cup of coffee in the morning. I've been drinking Good Walk since the fall and have loved every single cup. We're both busy guys, and we're both looking for fewer and fewer decisions to make. I just love how it shows up at our door every two weeks. The last thing you want to do during those code red mornings, and you know what I'm talking about, when the kid spills a cereal all over the floor and it's just a mess from there on, is to not have a solid, reliable, tasty cup of coffee to get you through the day. No doubt. That's a once a week occurrence at our house. Use course record 15 for a discount on your next order at goodwalkcoffee.com. And if you don't want to run out of coffee, sign up for a subscription so you'll save 15% and get free shipping. In this episode of the Course Record Show, Dan and I chat with Harry Arnett. Harry spent time at TaylorMade before a long run at Callaway Golf, where he led a total rebrand as VP of Marketing. We talk about how Harry and Callaway went about choosing which tour players to sponsor, his views on the distance debate, and how to radically reposition a brand at a time where social media went from zero to everything. Harry also talks about making the move to being co-founder and CEO of Municipal, a sport utility gear company, where he's business partners with Mark Wahlberg and Steve Levinson. You know, the guys behind Entourage and Ballers. Harry certainly has the energy and personality to fit right in with Vinny Chase and Turtle. He also happens to be a very thoughtful and genuine business leader that we can all learn a lot from. So let's jump right in and hear right from Harry. Harry, thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. It's nice to talk to actual human beings. Now that we're in the coronavirus, I feel like I spend a lot of my time emailing and texting. So it's good to have actual conversation. Yeah, this is great. Well, Harry, we'll see how normal we are by the end of this. We'll see if your, if your opinion changes of us too much in the <laughs> next few minutes. We want to start just taking a look back down memory lane at your time in the golf business, specifically getting a bit of a deeper dive on how we manage relationships with tour players and the tour in general. So to kick us off, I know your time at Callaway you sponsored a lot of tour players. Very curious to understand how involved you were personally in those decisions of who to sponsor. And what are some of the key attributes that you look in a player before committing to sign them? Yeah, very involved because the, the tour is, and it, this is really timely now with a lot of the discussion going on about equipment standards. And so when you're trying to create an aspirational brand, which all golf brands are trying to at some level, 
you really want the validation from the, the, the players that, that play it at the most elite level. And that's where the tour comes in. So there, there are really two components to that. Number one, you want players that are going to represent the values of your brand are going to represent the, what your company stands for above and beyond just how they play. But the second part of that is you want them to play well. You want them to play well when they're playing your equipment. So when I I was really proud of our approach when I was at Callaway and TaylorMade too before that, because that was the number one thing that we thought about and debated. Do we really think we can make this player better? And if we didn't think we could make a player better, then that was a red flag. So we, we always factored that in. There were... I can't, maybe early on when we were trying to turn the brand around and we didn't have a lot of tour players for Callaway, we probably reached a little far for some guys that were, we just wanted some, we wanted branding on tour and we wanted more numbers of people playing our, our clubs, but that, that vanished pretty quickly. Maybe a year or two in, we really started to want to engage more with players that we felt like not only could we help, but they were really interested in that relationship with us. It's a lot of science because there is science to it of tack angles. What kind of player are they? And now you can really size a player up, unfortunately, based on a lot of data. We talk about that. Oh, he's a 178 mile per hour ball speed guy. He's, an, he's a 180 plus ball speed guy. Now he's a 190 plus ball speed guy. Do you ever think you'd see guys on tour hit it? 190 ball speed, Roberto. It's crazy. That's crazy. It's changed. It's crazy. Speaking of data, what metrics do you use in either qualifying who would be a good player to sponsor or in evaluating someone that you just signed? Are we, are they improving? You mentioned some ball speed numbers, et cetera. What else do you use to validate many of the other intangibles that you spoke about? The one piece, because you can break a player down all the way down to spin rates, side spin, angle of attack, ball speed. Like I'm looking at Roberto. You guys, you're probably looking at Roberto and like, that's my body. I'm looking at Roberto. I'm thinking he's 168, 170 ball speed. He comes a little from the inside, hits a little draw. No, but the really the one factor and Roberto left this because he's, yeah, I could do that job. The one piece of data that is highly correlated to, to success on tour is how much were they winning? Was it, because you, you see plenty of, players out there with with talent and you just Roberto knows this you see him you're like the guy's never won anything so you it's not like they're going to turn a light switch on and win the guys that are dominating on tour didn't start dominating on tour they dominated when they were 17 that's the ultimate factor when you look at especially now with college is like how many wins was he playing in fields that had legit competition and th- those guys you could pretty much bank they're going to be they're going to be good tour players yeah, winners win. I thought you were going to say money list because when you were like, the only stat that matters is the money list or the FedEx. I kind of got into the golf industry a little bit later in my career. I was in the late 30s when I started TaylorMade and I had this really idealistic view of the profession, the motivation of the professional athlete. And then when I got around tour players, it's pretty simple. They want to win and they want to make a lot of money. <laughs> That's exactly right. They're just That's- like us. Yes, Exactly. Exactly. Just they're just their vocations a little bit different than ours is. Circling back to signing players, the last you left Callaway Golf in 2019. So when I matched up the timelines, I thought Xander Shoffley would have been a guy who started his pro career with TaylorMade, really ascended very quickly to the you know top level of the game, and then signed with Callaway. 
Were you involved in signing Xander specifically in his case? How does that process work? And how did you nail that? I was part of the team. I think that was one of the fun parts about being at Callaway was a lot of those types of decisions were team efforts because not only do you want to sign a player, but in my roles as an executive responsible for how we would communicate that out to the world is how are we going to match up Xander with our brand and then tell people about it at the most grassroots level. So for someone like him, that was pretty much as much of a no-brainer as it gets. He had, with the only risk, I suppose, is he hadn't won a lot, but he was at that time, 23 years old, I think. He was ascending. He, You could tell that he was about to hit that period in his career where he was learning how to rack up top tens and big events. He had, I think at that time he had, before he came to us, he had top, he had finished top 10 and three majors out of the four or something like that. A little bit out of nowhere, not for tour players, because you guys knew him, but for the average person probably didn't. I think when he top, I think he got a top five at Aaron Hills US Open in, in 20, whatever that was, 2017. So people were really starting to pay attention to him. He was, he's from San Diego. And we were really looking for a rising star that was younger rising star that could carry the mantle of being our, our premier guy for a while. Because Phil was Phil and I are the same age. So he was late. He was in his late 40s. He was still competing a lot, but he was on the tail end of his time when he was going to be in contention often in the big events. So we were looking at kind of those factors and then character plays a lot into it, as I mentioned before. So in the meeting with him and his father, Stefan, they were really interested in a relationship with an equipment company that could help take Xander to the next level and then stay there. I think there's a perception on the outside that players chase money with equipment contracts. And I think in some ways that can be true, but it's far riskier to a player to switch out than it is to stay with something they're comfortable with because with the money that's available in the PGA tour, they far surpass what an equipment company pays and what they earn on the golf course than what they earn by endorsing an equipment company with some exception, the top five or the top five or 10 players. Yeah. They're making between five and $10 million in endorsement money. But if you take a player, like just take like Dustin Johnson, who a number one in the world, I think Dustin on the golf course in calendar year 2020 made something like 16 million bucks or something like that, which is crazy. And so TaylorMade might pay him eight to 10. If he's making eight to 10 with TaylorMade, but his, his, as an example, and his play falls off, that's far riskier than just taking the guaranteed money from like an equipment company. Do you agree with that, Roberto? I agree. I think Dustin won like 23 million on course. 20, it was 15 for the FedEx now. The FedEx by Oh, right. I wasn't. Yeah. I was 15. Exactly. Yeah. That has shifted in, in my tenure on the tour. That has shifted as the purses have really increased. And actually, the endorsement dollars from equipment companies has decreased. Your calculus is 100% right. And that applies from the top to the middle to the bottom of the tour. If you're in the middle of the tour, and you're going to switch from one company to another for a hundred grand or another 200 grand, even in the middle of the tour, a good year is one, two, $3 million. So you're being very short-sighted and taking a hundred grand guaranteed and potentially 
hurting your performance. You're hundred percent. What really started to change, I think, which was really fascinating to me. I'm, I'm wondering what the established veterans on tour felt about this, but what really started to change since kind of 2015 was kids coming out of college that were getting guaranteed $2 million kind of deals, one, $2 million a year kind of deals without ever teeing it up on the PJ tour. And that kind of happened out of nowhere. Speed was the first guy I remember that jumped, well, t- Tiger, but he's an outlier. Speed was the first guy I remember that made that jump. And Under Armour wrote a fairly sizable check at that time. And we were all thinking they had lost their minds. And I think that paid off pretty well for them early on. But now you've got guys like Matt Wolf and Rom, who came out in 2015, 2016. Of course, Bryson, Colin Morikawa that are turning pro with guaranteed, like pretty sizable equipment deals. And that, that all is a fairly new phenomenon outside of once in a generation players like Tiger, even when Phil turned pro, I don't think even in, even in real dollars, I don't think that was the type of, of money that, that guys like that were signing for. So those rookie contracts that are so new, notwithstanding, the perception is that over the last maybe 15 or 20 years, the equipment money for, for on sponsorship basis for tour players has gone down. At A, do you largely see that to be true? And two, what do you attribute that to? What's, what are some of the forces behind What's causing that? I think TaylorMade was driving a lot of that in in the middle 2000s when they were chasing count. And they were really paying a premium to have headwear and drivers in play. And so that that drove the number up. And then, so it really forced, set the market there. And I think once TaylorMade pulled back, frankly, I think that's what kind of popped that bubble somewhat. And companies weren't as willing to, to pay high six figures for players that were between 50 and 100 in the world like they were 10 years prior. And that shift, Roberto probably lived through this, that, that shift happened like virtually overnight. It was like two, within two seasons, all of that changed with some blips along the way with when Nike pulled out of the equipment world, they were still paying and, and I think still are in some cases pretty a pretty nice amount for for apparel headwear and footwear but really overnight the whole thing shifted and it became very top 20 dominated but but yeah that that big shift happened overnight were you guys talking about that kind of stuff roberto in the locker room just how quickly it shifted yeah at my at my level especially which when i was playing nicely i was i got up to maybe 60 in the world but yeah i was a 50 to 200 guy in the world and those kind of pinch yourself checks from equipment companies went away pretty quick. My, I think my second, third year on tour, I had a tailor-made deal. I had tailor-made on the side of my hat, a big corporate sponsor on the front. And it was like a significant, it was $150,000, $200,000 deal for basically 11 clubs, including the driver. And that went away overnight, like you said. Yeah. That the next renewal was like, we can send you a driver. That's how that went. <laughs> We'll give you a deal. We'll give you a deal on a driver. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a hundred percent echoes your timeline. Yeah. Harry, back to the news that the RNA and the USGA are thinking about doing something about distance. And we're not sure what that is yet, but they, it feels like they've confirmed that they're going to do something. I feel like people speak for the equipment companies. They make assumptions in the debate. 
I'd like to hear directly from the source. How do equipment companies feel about the rules changes aimed at reining in distance in the pro game? Or if we're finally going to bifurcate rules, what is the boardroom at TaylorMade and Callaway and Tylos? Like, what are they talking about? Because I don't feel like we actually hear from them. We just have other people put words in their mouth. It's a delicate place to be because the all the companies you just talked about, and the two I know better than, than Titleist, but there's a real sincere respect for the USGA and a sincere respect for the job that they do. From my perspective, it's an impossible task what they're, what they're trying to do because they have so many constituents that have, that have different motivations. And I know that their stated goal is to do what's right for the game in capital letters, the game. But at the end of the day, our commitment when I was there was always to helping golfers play better and enjoy the game more. <laughs> so those two things are kind of at odds at when you're talking about, when you're talking about rolling the golf ball back and making it shorter, and you're talking about limiting the efficacy literally of golf equipment, it's going to make the game harder for the average golfer. The, I, that's where I, my personal perspective on it is that kind of where I was saying at the very beginning, it's like changing fuel standards for my Chevy Blazer because, because the guys in Formula One are driving too fast. Are you a proponent of bifurcation of two sets of rules? I'm a staunch proponent of two sets of rules. I play golf every weekend with my regular foursome. I promise you nobody's dominating our little short golf course here in San Diego. Let's make a tour standard golf ball. Easy enough. You still have, Tylus is not going to like that, by the way, but you're going to have, you're going to, you're going to still create an innovation path for the golf companies. You're, it's not going to take away any of the enjoyment and the growth of the game for guys like me that play on weekends. And it still will, I think, breed the competition on the PGA tour, but I'm interested in the player's perspective because you know, that the game at the highest level is, has absolutely shifted in the last five years to be much more of a power game. When I first started in the golf industry, which was 15 years ago when I was in the golf industry, Roberto could talk about this too. Probably the first time you got on a launch monitor was probably in college, maybe. Were you, did you ever get on one when you were in high school? No, we, they came in college, but they were so dodgy and I don't feel like they were reliable. It's like you said, it's the track man in the last five to six years. That's been a massive jump. What do you think your ball speed was when you were 23? I've hit it the same distance since I was 23. And when I got on tour, the qualitative way of saying it was Roberto hits it long enough to play the tour. And I was between 90 and 100 in driving distance on the PGA tour. And there's right. two, there, there are 200 guys on the PGA tour. And so you were years, like smack dab in the middle. Smack dab in the middle. And my ball speed was probably whatever, 166, and I hit it 286. Nine years later, it's the same ball speed. I still average 286, and I am 199 out of 203 players in distance on the PGA Tour. There you go. So there is nobody that hits it shorter than me. I'm not a single <laughs> player on the Tour. And that happened fast. Nine years isn't that much. I know. And you're probably better shape and all that stuff. Just... 
the guys coming out, a couple of things are happening, I think. Yes, the equipment's getting better. The And more, it's more just the science and the understanding of how to get ball speed from the player and the equipment and how to get distance is a lot further along than it ever has been. And you have guys now, and I don't necessarily love this way that, that some instructors teach, but they literally teach with the data on how to maximize distance and reduce spin and all that stuff. Yeah. I think too, when I was in college, there were guys that hit it long and they were 10 or 20 yards longer than me. Dustin's the same age as me. And we played together in college and taking him out of it. But the conversation was just like, yeah, I played with another all American today and I hit it in the middle of the mall and he's 12 yards longer than me, or he's 15 yards longer than me. And no yes, I could add eight yards if I put on 10 pounds and I should have, obviously. But now guys hit it 50 yards longer than me. And that is where you just say, you throw your arms up and you're like, I'm going to do what to add four yards? And it used to be three guys. It used to be Dustin and JB Holmes and whoever, Tiger. Now there's 30 or 50 guys that can carry it 320 yards. And that's 50 yards longer. I think it's, they're learning. There's a lot more fitness and they're a lot there. They've learned how to, how to use that speed to deliver it to a golf ball um, more than guys used to. But Roberto can shoot down that theory quickly. Now, Dan would have to explain this because he's much more of a real <laughs> engineer than I am. But I think if you combine two things, anecdotally, they said that in the 80s, 90s, 70s, the harder you hit it, the, the more the ball would spin. I think that what has happened is the equipment allows this one-to-one, the faster you swing, the ball doesn't spin, the farther you can hit it. So you have these tools that you can use to just get speed and speed, and the ball just goes farther and farther. I don't think it's the players as much. They're learning, like you said, they're using the data better. But you can't tell me when you watch, Greg Norman could have hit it three, he would have hit it 320 in the air with that golf swing. And Nicholas, in his younger years, when you watch that golf swing, if you would have put a Callaway Epic in his hand and a Pro V, it would have gone 330 yards. So I don't think, I think it's the tools and the knowledge of what to use, how to use the tools. But I think the spin thing is a real thing that like, you could You're, just, the I mean, harder you hit it, the more it's yeah, fun. It's a, it's, a didn't... it's a nuanced thing, but it's a, it's a really important thing that the balls, the golf balls that players are playing now, the spin profile is nowhere near what it was 10 years ago. Guys are playing on tour with golf balls that spin significantly less than they did 10 years ago. And, and Roberto's right. They're, they're learning they're, That's how they're playing the game with speed and low spin. It's wild. The, the Georgia Tech kids, I still live in Atlanta. I still practice with the guys on the team some. And there's just, no, there's just not a guy that carries it 200. Any, they all carry it over 300 yards. And that's just standard. It's just standard issue. Sir, you mentioned your view on bifurcation. Do you think others in the equipment business feel the same way? You won't get a consensus. I think that, I think that at, if you remove the commercial interests of the golf companies and they're all run and populated with people that love the game that I think we all would probably stack hands on anything that would potentially 
cause people to walk away from the game is a bad idea. And I just, I see personally anything that talks about, we're going to make the game harder. We're going to make it harder for people to see improvement is a potential disaster. And I think that viewpoint's probably shared by most where I don't think equipment sales or, or golf ball sales even would decrease at large one bit if there was a different standard for the professional tours. Do you think a marketing dollar for an equipment company is better spent on a handful of blue chip players or winning the count? So at a tour event, if there are 100 players, Callaway has 55 drivers in play and that's winning the count. All things being equal, I'll take the count if okay. you're offering it to me. It's just, it's expensive. So I, and that's a debate that we had at Callaway just about every year I was there, and particularly as we got momentum in it and it became a possibility for us to potentially go after the count. But I also was of the, of the mindset that it's not absolutely required based on how readily accessible information is to people to be able to learn about your products and learn about your brand. Where 15 years ago, the only way anybody ever knew about golf products was from a magazine, their, their club professional or watching on TV. That was it. Where now the, the consumer is in much better position to educate himself or herself about equipment and the game and instruction it's there's so many avenues now for people to curate their own learning but the, all that being said if you were going to offer me one or the other i'll take the count <laughs> you talked about the how the consumer is so much more aware and has much more access to information so Marketer to marketer, I've got a question about that and how you capitalize on that. I, as a consumer, certainly experienced a big repositioning of the Callaway brand over the last several years. A lot younger, a lot more digital, a lot more talking to me in a much more salient way. Was there resistance in taking the brand that way? What made you confident that it could succeed in a totally different set of rules? There really wasn't any pushback when we, we started down that journey. We were in a turnaround, and so we needed a different way to market our products and so we saw that as a real opportunity for us to marry up two, two things that we felt were important, which was the premiumness and innovation expertise of the Callaway brand, which we really wanted to be aspirational in, in that area. So premiumness and innovation, but we really also wanted to be the most accessible brand that anybody had ever seen, not, not just in golf, but anywhere. And those were two, that's really a compromise that people feel like they have to make a lot of times, because if you're talking about aspirational and premium, most brands manage their brand that way to be somewhat exclusive. So there's an inherent exclusivity. If you think of, if I just said, hey, name five luxury brands or premium brands, we'd probably all name Rolex or Porsche. And there's a even like a channel strategy that makes those products like hard to get. Do you guys agree with that? 100%. We thought, what if we could take the premiumness and we could cut out the intermediary to how we tell the stories so that people would, when they wanted to learn about Callaway, they would come directly to us. 
And we really were thinking about the way that people were communicating and are communicating was much more casual, was much more mobile, handheld. The How could we marry up like the authentic vernacular of golf with the way that people communicate to ourselves and have among each other and have that be our brand voice while still talking about really cool shit that we were really proud of. And if we could do that would be, that would be cool on a couple different levels. Number one, just from a brand expression, people would see us a lot more modern than we were before, which was pretty stodgy. If you wouldn't, as a matter of fact, you guys should have Chip Brewer on your show sometime. Chip and I walked around Augusta in 2013. So we were just getting the brand going and we said, let's count the people here that are wearing Callaway headwear, but they don't count if they're over 50 years old. So how many people are at, uh, how many people are at the masters walking around? They won't ever tell you, but let's just say it's 60,000 people, maybe more. I think we walked around for four or five hours and we counted three people that were wearing Callaway hat. We saw tailor-made hats everywhere, Nike hats everywhere, Titleist hats, even Titleist hats everywhere. So we were like, we got to get, we really have to get this brand, not necessarily younger in terms of the demographic, but in terms of our tone, we really got to get this brand cooler so that at least maybe by 2014, when we come back, maybe we'll see 10 guys wearing the Cali hat. So we really... We're embracing like that new, a new way of communicating. And, and I think, so pushback, not at all, because we really, we had no choice. (laughs) Harry, you had a successful tenure in the golf business and chose to shift gears into the apparel world, specifically with the sport utility apparel company, Municipal. Love to hear a little bit more about that experience. Everybody says, if you're going to start something on your own, don't do it because you're running away from something. And that certainly wasn't the case. I had a role I loved at Callaway. I worked with people I loved. I, I worked for somebody, Chip Brewer, who's still someone that is a mentor and I model a lot of my decision-making after. But I felt like I really wanted to challenge myself to push myself right to the edge and see if I had what it took to help create something from scratch that would be successful. That voice in my head, was really starting to get loud like my last couple of years at Callaway. Coincidentally, that tracked with when I met Mark Wahlberg, who loves golf more than anybody I know. And he and I are roughly the same age. He was going through some of those same themes. He was starting to diversify what he was involved in. He really wanted to get into various businesses outside of entertainment. He was diversifying within entertainment and he and I bonded over like that shared life experience. And I was really interested in his kind of motivation and he had made a sincere commitment to health and wellness and trying to really align his talent, his ambition and his sense of purpose together. And that's exactly what I was going through. And so we started to talk about, let's do a brand together. And we were fumbling around somewhat with what the concept was. And ultimately, we started at a really, I think, cool place is we started with the vision instead of what the product is. Go ahead, Roberto. You knew it would be apparel 
or you literally, you didn't know if it would be a gym. So you didn't even know it would be apparel. You just, no. it could have been an app. It could have been gyms. It could have yeah. been. That's how, do, how do you go from, how, how do you go from the macro to the micro? He only puts his time in stuff that he cares about. And I obviously was leaving something or was thinking about leaving something that, that I loved. And so what we really triangulated on was that we wanted to build a community of inspired people who never stop pursuing their full potential. And we wanted to create an environment, whether it was a brand, a service, as you guys were saying, or a technology. But so ultimately it has to be something we know what we're doing. <laughs> so we're not gonna go toe to toe with Zuckerberg and, and Jack over at Twitter. So we better figure out, it better be something that we know about. And so then we went bottoms up at that point, Dan, we're like, okay, where do we feel like, and this is where Steven Levinson came in, Mark's partner on a lot of other stuff is where do we feel like we have the best chance to be not just disruptive, but we can do something of significant value to the consumer. And Mark and I were talking about with just Mark's passion for health and wellness my experience in active sports and, and, and performance sports is there's, there's an opportunity for us to do something really cool and unique in a market that's big enough to matter that will put all those pieces together. And so that's ultimately how we landed on what municipal is, which is when we started talking about it, I think sometimes ideas work this way when we started talking about it, it became so obvious to us, which is there's this convergence of, of street style and athleisure, this collision that's about, that is happening, that nobody has created a brand that put those two things together. So the most comfortable, softest, versatile stuff that you wear all the time with a style that is accessible and resonant that will make everyone look and feel great. And if we could be a brand that sort of celebrated, not just, oh, you're gonna feel great, but celebrated the journey that we all take to try to become better human beings, that's where like our purpose started to come in, then that would be a really cool thing for us to do. And who knows how big that is, but, that would be worth our time to, for me, that's worth my time to spend 80 hour weeks doing. As a follow-up to that, you launched the apparel brand in the second half of 2020. Do you still see 10 miles down the road, gym equipment? And do you see like a whole ecosystem that yeah, is around health and wellness and municipal and the apparel is step one? Absolutely. I think that this is just the first step now we we want to build a foundation and a customer base that starts to look at us as oh those guys make like quality stuff that are designed for the lifestyle of reaching your full potential and achievement and not cutting any corners and celebrating the self-starter the self-made aspect of it and in a weird way first of all when we started this nobody told us there's a pandemic coming in 2020 so that's been fun but in a weird way, the things that we were hypothesizing and part of our thesis of why we felt like this brand was needed really got accelerated during that time 
during this time, like it's over, it's still going on this time, which is from a product perspective, everybody is embracing comfort. They're working from home. They want the versatility that they get from going from one place to the next. They're dressed down, but they don't want to look sloppy. And from the brand perspective, which is the second stage of how we plug in our media and social strategy and digital strategy is I think everybody inherently is because of this has really started to evaluate and put their arms around the stuff that absolutely matters to them. And if it's not in that circle, we're not spending time on it. So we're really prioritizing as people, as fathers, as human beings, the stuff in our lives that have substance. So a lot of those themes have really accelerated our thinking, but our growth path will definitely follow what you're talking about, Roberto, outside of this core like apparel thing. Because my our co-founder, Lev, Steve Levinson, he says all the time, is, I can't wait till we're not in the apparel business anymore. But that's really what he's saying is like, till we're reaching this, our own full potential as a brand where we really are engaging with people in a way that feels like their lives are, are better because we exist. What's the most overlooked part about being CEO? It's just a commitment. It's a full-time commitment. I think I inherently knew that was going to be the case. And we're a tiny company. We're 14 employees. I'd been a part of organizations where the number of people I was responsible for was hundreds of people and never felt that I was on the clock 24 hours a day. And if there's, and this is part of maybe being specifically CEO of a startup is every hour I'm not spending thinking about long-term brand value in the short-term operations is an hour longer it's going to take us to get where we need to go. It's like Ben Hogan used to say, every day he's not practicing is one day longer it's going to take him to get great. So that's the same. And I don't think I've done a good enough, I'm sure there's somebody that has done this kind of job for a long time that could tell me more about how to manage that. But that's an intensity that I've had to get used to or tried to get used to over the past uh, year and a half. Do you find it easier or harder to turn work off and turn family on being at a big company or basically being CEO of a small company? I think it's easier in a big place, but one of the nice things about the quarantine is I haven't done any business travel since yeah. the last time I was in, I've been on an airplane in, in exactly one year, which I can't even remember the last time I've said that. So it's been easier to manage the pull of family. And I think, so I haven't missed any of the stuff that I typically would miss. You're, you had a job that puts you on the road. How many weeks were you on the road? 40, 35? Yeah, 30. That's hard. So Harry, shifting gears a little bit to how you see yourself as a leader. Roberto plays around a golf. He puts up a score. He knows if he did well or not, but the, a lot of the business world just isn't that direct. Oftentimes it's just hard to get feedback. How do you create your own feedback loops to get over that? And how do you promote getting feedback and acting on it? It's essential. The, the more senior you get, the lonelier it gets. And you're absolutely right. People stop telling you things. I always say people stop telling you the truth. It's just, it's human nature. And it's incumbent upon me to create dynamic 
trusting, kind, candid relationships with the people that are closest to me, whether they're direct reports or, or one layer below, or certainly like mentors that I have that will shoot straight and letting them know that they have the space to do so. And it's constant. I'd say that's the other thing that's really different, particularly in a startup is how much you have to communicate because there's no natural inertia to a startup. You don't have the natural inertia of long-term, of being in business for a long time with long-term business partners or just the way you operate. Everything you do, you have to create your own momentum. And that is a constant commitment to that communication loop that you're talking about. So it, it really is about having a commitment to the dialogue, learning how to ask the right kinds of questions and really encouraging people, acknowledging and rewarding when people give you feedback, even if it comes across as criticism. And I, I believe me, that's not something that I inherently was good at. I always, especially as a young guy growing up and having jobs, I always heard feedback as criticism and I hated it. So you learn that a couple of things. Number one, when somebody gives you some feedback about your own, your own performance or your own behavior, they're telling you a lot about you and they're also telling you a lot about themselves. So I've, I try to get into kind of a Zen place where I'm looking at it through that prism and much the same when you mention Roberto, much the same way if he's working with a coach or somebody who isn't going to tell him he played well when he shot 75. Did you ever hate that? What's the biggest challenge I've seen with PGA Tour coaches is they have a very difficult job. Coaching a tour player, that guy's been at the top 1% of his profession since he was a junior golfer, college golfer, and he's obviously good enough to have made it to the PGA Tour. And the really good coaches will go to that guy and be like, you need to do this better. This is what's right and this is what's wrong. Here's the information, take it or leave it. And that's a hard thing to say to a top 50 player in the world, but that's what they need. And I don't know how to do it. And they, they have kind of ninja ways of, of communicating and telling a guy that he's great and he's 10 feet tall, but that he could do a little bit better. But that is a really tough deal. So that feedback loop in the instructors on, for PGA Tour players is really challenging. And I've watched, I've watched some of my instructors l go through that learning process. I never worked with Butch Harmon, who I'm sure is just, he's been doing it 40 years, but I worked with some great instructors who we learned together and it was really cool to watch them work with me and work with other players. Yeah. Chip, my old boss used to talk about CEO disease. It's like, he's trying to avoid CEO disease, which is where you think that you're unassailable and every idea you have is great. And just the arrogance that comes with the profession, you have to have a high degree of confidence in a role like that, but you also have to have an incredible amount of humility and have a passion for learning and getting better. And, uh, and that's, you know, I mentioned that phrase, which is one I subscribe to, which is kind candor, which is for my team here, we practice that, which is you, you owe it to your colleagues and especially me to provide them with information that's going to help them get better. Or if you see a behavior that's undermining their own ability to be effective, to call it out in real time, kindly, candidly, and we have to have the type of environment and culture where I'm giving you permissions. That takes some time. It takes muscle memory. It takes reps. 
And over time, you build a really profound trust among your teammates. And if you do it really well culturally, then that that scales throughout the entire organization, whether you're 14 or 14,000. It's a really profound topic, Dan, because I think that especially as you get, as you rise up through an organization or what have you, you it gets lonely. That's awesome. I've thrown my papers away just because the conversation has been so interesting. Dan, I'll give you the last last question and then we'll do some rapid fire kind of one word answer type fun stuff. From a business standpoint, where do we go from here for Municipal? What's the roadmap look like? Big milestones you've got ahead. What are you super psyched to be able to check off your, your box? The box you're most excited to check off, I should say. Give us some example of what, what would make the next conversation when we catch up. Yeah. So we're, it's interesting place. And I should say it's been exactly what I was hoping for in terms of, or maybe be careful what you ask for. Cause I, I really have felt like I've been right on the edge of the learning curve constantly. And one of the things that's really different is holding on to two concepts that are really opposing forces, which is the short-term execution and operations of the business, the cold, hard realities of what's our daily sales number look like with what are the things we need to be doing to build long-term brand value, long-term enterprise value, and trying to marry up those two things. So we've been at the same time, we've been building this foundation where we would have the potential to explode with growth while still building out in a methodical, patient way, the things that we need to do to build kind of long-term sustainable business model. I'll give you an example about that. With Mark's involvement, it would have been really easy for us to have put this brand in a national retailer at some point in the first you know, two or three months of our existence. That would have been short-term success that would have been somewhat of disaster for our long-term viability. We're not a brand anyone knows. It probably wouldn't have done very well at retail. We then would have had our product discounted, et cetera, et cetera. So we've had to be really patient at the same time, have a lot of conviction and confidence that we're doing the right things. So I'm happy to say we launched officially on municipal.com. So we're building the foundation. We invested pretty heavily into a kick-ass digital experience on municipal.com. So we didn't cut any corners there. And there, the, the next step for us is to start doing a lot more things that are more explosive and aggressive in how people find out about us. So we've done very little advertising. We've done very little promotion. We really didn't want this to be seen as a Mark Wahlberg vanity project. We wanted this to have some real substance to it. We're gonna transition from questions that would involve a lot of depth, a lot of nuance. We're gonna put that aside. The premium now is on speed. So we've got two segments okay. here. I'll lead one called tap-ins and then Roberto will lead the next one. So I'm gonna fire away if you're ready. Favorite golf course. This will surprise you. This will surprise Roberto. My favorite golf course legit is Bobby Jones Golf Course in Atlanta. <laughs> I love it. I can't get enough of it. And they uh, redid it. I haven't played it since the redo, but I've had the I've had the opportunity to play a lot of great places. And I also think I'm always a guest no matter where I go. I don't have any delusion that someday I'll be a member at one of those places, but I always love playing at Bobby Jones. 
may have a chance for the next one too, which is favorite municipal golf course. It's still Bobby Jones. Favorite 19th hole. <sighs> okay, now I'll get super snooty. I had the opportunity with, and, and this is probably more like the person I was with in the experience, but a mentor of mine is Alan Mulally, who's used to be the CEO of Ford. And I had transfusions with Alan Mulally on the, underneath the umbrella at Augusta National. That's pretty good. That's hard to top. That is hard to top. Best golf trip you've been on? I love, and this is not profound at all because everyone loves going to this place. I love going to Bannon Dunes. Love it. Just can't get enough of it. I'm on the West Coast, so it doesn't take a full day to get there like it does for the East Coasters. But I love the whole vibe of that place. So anytime anybody wants to go, I'm all in. Still on my bucket list. Yeah, you got to get there. Who's the player you most wanted to sign but couldn't land? It probably was John Rahm, and they had to wait for me to leave. And then now he's back. He's at Callaway. So we we kicked ourselves for a while on that one because he quickly became like a top 10 player, like instantly. Better golfer, you or Wahlberg? I think I'd probably take him if we played my way, which is let's just walk at a normal pace and... <laughs> If we played his way, I think I would probably tap out after 12 holes because I'd be too tired. But he's a sneaky, he's dangerous because he's probably like a nine handicap that can shoot 73. So he's dangerous. He's, but he could shoot 90. I think the time to play him is you got to play him on that nine handicap when he's been shooting a movie for a couple months. Never play him at the end of a one or two month time in between movies because he's been playing a lot never playing then say Wahlberg comes up and shoots one of those 73s that you talked about and takes a bunch from you and a bet and just like wipes you out would you rather pay cash to settle this or would you rather do one of his 3 30 a.m workouts oh god i'm old school that way which is i when you lose a bet i pay instantly either standing on the green or when we're sitting at the table i also have a, a personal philosophy that I never like to bet people that make a lot more money than I am because it's hard. It's a gut punch to hand money to somebody that has a lot more money than you do. When will hoodies be accepted at private clubs? We're almost there. And their guys are wearing them on tour right now. So I think, I don't know, do people look, will people look at you weird, Roberto, where you play? If you wore a hoodie? I played a pretty fancy club today and there was a guy in my group wearing a hoodie. So I think we're there. We're already there? I think we're there. It'll be what'll be fascinating to me is when April rolls around on one of those cold mornings is if somebody's going to wear a hoodie and will somebody say something about it? You won't ever you won't you won't ever know they said it, but will it happen? But I think we're probably already there. Entourage or ballers? Oh, good question. So different. I, I'm going to have to say I'm going to have to say ballers. If you look at that show, a lot of the topics and themes they were talking about were ahead of their time, but it has a, it's meteor to me. Entourage is just a fun ride. All right. Last happen. Better to have in business, good people, good culture, or good product. It's an old saying, but it's so true is that your culture eats your strategy for lunch. So you can go to battle with the right people and, and figure it out. So I always start with that. Your culture is the most important thing. And it doesn't change. So your culture shouldn't evolve. Your strategy always will or can, and your tactics certainly do, but your culture can't. 
Next section is called buy or sell. These are pretty self-explanatory. Buy or sell, Tesla. I'm selling Tesla. Buy or sell, the Tokyo Olympics. I'm... My heart says buy, my head says sell. Buy or sell, simulator golf. I am big time selling simulator golf. I don't like it. Do you like it? I haven't played it in too long to have a... See, there you go. I don't enjoy it at all. I think part of it is I feel claustrophobic trying to hit balls in a simulator. You guys Buy know there's good weather, though. That's probably what's going on. Yeah, maybe yeah. so. Dan's in Boston. He could do some... Oh, yeah. You're like, balls. what? I'm dying for a simulator. <laughs> Buy or sell Bitcoin. I have to understand it before I'm buying or selling it. So I'm going with the Warren Buffett thing is if you don't understand a business, don't invest in it. <laughs> Are you guys on all over Bitcoin? I'm not. You're not? Same reason. Same reason you have. Same, yeah. That's a good strategy. Yeah, right I think now, it's a good strategy too. I don't invest enough anymore because all my money is in municipal now, unfortunately. But I did really well with investing in companies whose products you like. And it's as simple as that. When I was at Callaway, we did this talk show in front of a studio audience called Callaway Live, where we piled a bunch of people in studio audience. And it was an interview kind of show where we talked to people that were just connected to the game. So players, media, business people that love the game. Talmud, Alan, or I met him before that, but I had him on. David Novak, who has become a mentor and friend, CEO of Young Brands. I decided just on a whim, oh, I'm going to put together the Callaway Live Fund, which is business leaders that I have on the show. I'm going to invest in their company because these are really good business leaders. And that fund in the six years that I had it grew like almost 60% year on year for six straight years. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah. So I think like people that you believe in as leaders and it just, if you like products, I never had anybody from Peloton on, but Georgia tech guys, that's it. It is a Peloton. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Love it. Unfortunately for Dan and I, not these two Georgia Tech guys. Yeah, come on, guys. <laughs> Isn't it like the simple, it's a simple idea that's very well executed. And I know there's a lot of complexity on how you do it, but isn't that just the best ideas are the ones that are the simplest? Yeah. I hope sport utility gear is one of them. Like it could be, but who knows? Yeah. Buy or sell self-driving cars. There's no chance I'm getting, well, you guys are the engineers. Tell me there's no chance I'm jumping in a self, a self-driving car without putting my hands on the steering wheel. Okay. I'll put you down for would you guys? Would you guys do it? Are you guys buying that? For sure. You are? Yeah, for sure. All right. Dan's more, Dan's smarter than I am in engineering. So maybe I'll take your word for it. My daughter is five. And when she was born, I made a bet with my wife that she would never get her driver's license and drive a car. And I don't look good in that bet right now because to a, to a layman, they've, there's been no progress in five years on self-driving cars. How much did you better? Oh, whatever. I mean, whatever she like will give me. Tours for a week or something? I hope yeah. yeah. <laughs> Buy or sell getting an MBA in 2021. I have an MBA. I'm buying it. I would never trade that experience for anything. I think, I think that... It, I should say specifically like doing it as a full-time on the full-time versus a part-time. I don't have any experience on the part-time, but I think the 
accelerated learning along some topics in a condensed way is, is really important. And I think the other thing I'd have as a caveat is do it after you have a few years under your belt of being out in the real world, because the stuff will make more sense. If you were admitted today, would you do it and start remote or wait until you could do it in person? I would wait. Just that's me. I, I just think so much of the academic experience is the camaraderie and the exchange of information. I went to a school that placed a premium on learning via team, team learning. So I, I would probably wait. Lastly, buy or sell working remotely. I'm selling it so hard. <laughs> I can't stand it. I cannot stand it. It's a zero out of 10. If I was giving it a score, zero out of 10. I think there's some cool parts about it. I think that for a company, it really opens up your pool of potential employees. You're not limited, obviously, by time and space or by space and time potentially. But as, a, as somebody that gets a great deal of enjoyment out of seeing people I work with, and my own management style is very much a, I lead by walking around. I've been, I felt like I've had one arm tied behind my back since we've been working remotely. So sell, hard sell. I like it. The only thing that could have made this conversation more enjoyable is if we were in person, maybe a couple of beers in hand. So I'll sell working remotely too. Harry, thanks right. a million. But hey, this is great. Thank you. Great to see you guys. Yeah, good luck with everything. Thanks All guys. Right. All right, Dan, great conversation with Harry, high energy guy, long tenure in the golf business at a really high level. Uh, what jumped off the page at you? What jumped off the page the most is how different a leader he is from folks like me. And by that, I mean, I'm so analytically driven and process oriented and Harry's not by his own admission. So contrasting styles there is fascinating to me. So you're saying that when you try to you know, measure market penetration. You don't just go to the masters and start counting how many hats you see. Cause I thought that was an amazing story. I loved that. He was like, we saw two hats all day. We're fucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's hairy analytical and I love it. It works and it, 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 it makes the point very effectively, but uh, you know, just how he thinks more from uh, a more of a place of intuition, more a place of, of people people first, I should say, was fascinating. And we'll, we'll talk about this some more because I think there's some examples that jump out, but he's the kind of guy that makes me realize I have blind spots in my own approach to business. Yeah. And so the question, you know, kind of uh, talking to the Wizard of Oz for me as a player was like, how do you sign players? How do you evaluate them? How do you make decisions on? That was the first when, when I came up with what I wanted to talk to Harry about. That was the top of my list. And I was a great answer. I thought he was more detailed than I thought he would be in like looking at ball speed and spin rate and launch angle. I thought I was like, wow, I didn't know they got that into it. But then I loved how he was like, you know, what matters winning. So that was a real inside look at how he makes decisions too. Right. Hey, winning solves a lot of problems and that's that cuts through a lot of the noise when you just look at it from that main factor winning solves every problem. problem winning solves every problem <laughs> sure does and he's look i think he's right the players you see on tv the vast majority 
either won the U.S. Junior or made a run at the U.S. Junior and were big-time All-Americans in college. And then take the guy that, you know, like a guy like me. I was a good college player, not great, but and had to go through the mini-tours, but I won a bunch of mini-tour events. So you don't get guys that are just kind of kicking it around the mini-tours and then get their card and have success on the tour. It's kind of a pattern that emerges, and everyone's different. If you win the USAM and, you know, go John Rahm, where he was two-time college player of the year. Obviously, he's different than me winning some, you know, mini tours in Huntersboro, North Carolina, but it's still something. And that pattern is still something. So what are you saying? You want to have to, you want to take a job of picking who Callaway or Titleist or Taylor Major sponsor next? Dude, I got like the chills when he started saying that these companies are paying young guys like seven figures coming out of college. That is the last job in the world. I would want to have because you will get your ass fired. It's impossible. It is impossible to pick who's going to really pan out. So like take the Justin Leonard, Phil Mickelson, Ryan Moore, Bryson. If you win the NCAA and you win the U S amateur, that's as close as you're going to get to a sure thing, but take some guys that are really great players and some pan out and some don't and, and pan out is subjective also, but, you know, Callaway made a big bet on this kid out of Oregon, Norman Jong. He hasn't really played the tour. Patrick Rogers, who won more times at Stanford than Tiger Woods, has played the tour and played some nice golf. But, you know, he had massive expectations coming out of college and a big Nike deal. And then you got Xander Shoffley, who was a good player at San Diego State and got better every year. But he's one of the top five players in the world now. Scotty Scheffler. Again, good player, U.S. junior champ, top 30 in the world. It's just really hard to pick which of those guys is – you're going to have some absolute strikeouts, and that is a tough, tough business to be in, man. I wouldn't want to be that guy. Yeah, I guess it depends on how the economics work because I wonder if this is more venture capital or debt investing, right? Like there's one there's – What do you one, mean by that? But, well, I mean like there's one bus bring down the house and make the whole – ROI of the sponsorship program, like tank, oh, I got or is it more like venture capital where one out of 10 needs to be a massive hit and it more than covers all the duds, right? I have no, I, I'd be fascinated to know on a portfolio basis, how yeah. you think about this and what, what tolerance for risk you can have in that perspective. Yeah. That's a really interesting way to think about it. And we need to try to get like a college development guy on you know, like it was basically the scouts for these companies, but you know, top of my head, I think it's different for the different companies. So take Titleist, they've got 80% of the ball share, whatever, maybe it's higher in college. So you're going to get a, they're going to get a bunch of guys coming out of college, playing the ball that they can make small bets on, but Callaway, they're looking for front of the hat. They're looking for drivers. That's a splashier investment to me. It could be more of a VC model. So I think, and those are just different dynamics of like what equipment players use, right? It's driven by a different, just a different business model between Callaway and Titleist. So that, that might be part of the answer at least. Yeah, that's interesting. Hey, sticking with the OEMs, but switching gears a little bit, what was your take on Harry's uh, approval of bifurcation? Well, how did you, I love that you went into that and try to get the, the equipment company reps perspective on it. What did you think of his answer there? Well, I loved hearing him talk about it because I think that's the voice that doesn't get hurt. 
I think every golfer knows how Brandel Chambly feels about it and how Rory McIlroy feels about bifurcation and how far the ball goes. And everyone puts words in the mouths of the, of the equipment companies, but it was cool to actually hear from them. And my big takeaway there was that he said, look, the executives running all these companies, yeah, they show up work every day trying to make money, but they love golf. And I thought that was like, I needed to hear that because I, I think that gets lost. And when I think about it, he's right. They all got into the business because they're junkies. They have a passion for golf. They, so of course they're trying to make money, but just hearing that, that Harry loves golf through and through, and it's not just about selling 1% more golf balls. He's also a true fan and the game is a huge part of his life too. So I thought that was great. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I initially I thought the response of being favored for bifurcate of, of bifurcation was almost counterintuitive to what I've expected someone in that position to say. But the more I think about it, no matter what the RNA or the USGA do, it's gonna get all these companies on a level playing field. They have to compete against each other on some terms. That's true. And so, you know, it's not just changing it for one company. So the it's it's you know, in a if you think about relative advantage they all got to find a different way to make it work. And um, so that really helped me make more sense of Harry's response and why what I felt was counterintuitive maybe isn't so much when you think about it. And I think Harry explained that well. People get so emotional about this issue that uh, it's, it's a hot button, man. It's not going away either. Guys were just hitting it farther and farther. It's, it's gotten very emotional. You're right about that. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's jump to the municipal question for you. So Harry and Marky Mark conceived this kind of whole ecosystem of municipal. Why do you think they started with apparel? Why was that step one of, of the whole world that they're going to create? I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think the, I think the explanation that makes sense to me, this is a theory, not an answer, but my theory is apparel has a low barrier to entry. Great. That's good. It also makes it a not very profitable business. Not good. But if there's an ecosystem play behind it that we're yet to see, then apparel gives you essentially a really good branding platform to get the name out there, to get Marky Mark's name out there, to get the brand out there and what they're all about and the vision that, that Harry described. Yeah. And it almost, it, it's marking the pace for itself with some profitability, hopefully, to help launch, to help sort of catalyze whatever the next pivot is coming off of that. So that's an explanation that at least jives to me and could be a, essentially a, a good way to sort of fund the next play coming in the ecosystem. So I don't know, if this, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. I think it gives you a wide reach, right? Apparel, if you're going direct to consumer like they are, you know, you can sell a shirt to a guy in Seattle, a guy in Miami, and then all of a sudden municipal is spreading around the country where let's say you start with gyms. The barrier to entry is a little bit higher, real estate. And let's say they go big and they open six gyms in Southern California. You don't really have any reach outside Southern California as far as building your brand. So I think that's definitely part of it. And the other thing is their trump card is Marky Mark, right? I don't know how many followers on social media Mark Wahlberg has, but it's got to be tens of millions. So the analysis could have simply been like, 
with Mark Wahlberg in our back pocket, apparel is the way to leverage him. And that could have been one way to think about it too. It goes viral. It's very easy to sort of transmit that information out there. So I think that makes sense too. Yeah. And if, again, reach, if you see Mark Wahlberg working out at this kick-ass gym and you're like, I want to go there and it's in LA and you're living in Des Moines, Iowa, you can't really touch part of that brand. If you see Mark Wahlberg, part of this really cool thing called Municipal, and you can order a t-shirt from Municipal in Des Moines, you're like, oh, now I'm, I'm part of the Municipal thing. So it's just very accessible for people. So I think it could have been a really, really smart place to start. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And you know, the whole athleisure thing is in and you know, oh, yeah. they're, they're, they're a part of that. So they're, they're in a bit of a trend within the apparel space that it is, is more nuanced than apparel in general. Yeah. And I, you know what? I really liked their take and I thought it was very authentic that they want to motivate people to be active. They want to be a part of like a cultural shift to where it's cool to work out and it's cool to take care of yourself. And that was not just marketing BS. Like Harry had conviction in that concept. And I'm sure Wahlberg does too. You know, that guy's walking the walk, working out at two 30 in the damn morning or whatever he does. So I think, you know, authenticity goes a long way. And I think they have that. All right. Next part where I had my, I just got my bowl of popcorn out was your great question about feedback. I shoot 72. You can just have immediate feedback on a result. Listening to you guys talk about feedback in your environments was super fascinating. And uh, I loved that part. So well, well played there. I loved hearing that. Well, I was very selfishly motivated to ask that question because it's something that I think about a lot in my my career, and I'm sure other professionals do too. And so back to the whole how he thinks differently than than someone like I do. You know, when we talk about the lack of feedback loops in the business world, my intuition is to build my own feedback loop, be self-reflective, build in time for um, for self-examination and, and being self-aware. But Harry went the complete opposite way. He's like, just because you're a leader doesn't mean you can't get feedback from others. You just got to make sure that the, the conditions, that the environment is set up more deliberately to get there. And I thought that was very interesting. I did not think that's where he was going to go. And it's got me questioning my own system too. So you and think so? You think he he kind of like just tries to build a culture where people are willing to give him feedback? You're saying that's you think that's what he does more than what you do? That's right. Yeah, he it does, and which is which is harder in practice than in theory because the reality is like the moment you criticize one employee too hard they're going to shut down and never going to give you that feedback. So you got to be super mindful of the long game in terms of getting feedback. Yeah. Way ahead of the game, even though you're just trying to have an exchange, you have to create a, an, uh, an emotionally, um, uh, psychologically very safe environment. That is when you want to give criticism to others is very hard. So it's, um, it's a really fine balance. So his answer makes sense, but in practice, actually kind of hard to do. So it takes a very special leader to do it. Yeah. And I also got a little bit of like the Ray Dalio vibe from Harry with a radical open-mindedness as far as how he builds that culture. That's just kind of how the impression I got from how he deals with people. Yeah, it, it probably is. It probably is. 
I do think power dynamics make a difference here. Like in terms of when you put in a hierarchy in place, yeah, that can break down. So the Dalio thing and what we're seeing that, that what feels like the Harry thing is hard. And I admire people who try to do it because I, I logically, my brain goes, yes, that's the answer. Seek truth, yeah, be honest, etc. I think people's emotional, core, you know, cortex goes to a different place sometimes, and and that breaks down. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good point. See, that's why I have, you know, my, my caddy and I, we can, God bless him, you know, I can throw clubs at him when I get mad on the course, and he's nice enough to be like, well, that was just business thing, and then we can go have a beer later. But that's, I have a business of two compared to a business of 14 or 1400 or 140,000 in, in uh, some people's case. So, well, we got to get him on the show to see what he thinks about that too. Oh, uh, we cannot have my caddy on the show. That would go so poorly <laughs> for me. God bless him. He's the best. That would not be good for me. I would not look good. We're not coming out looking good in that deal. It was great to have Harry on really appreciate his time. Super guy. And I'm looking forward to following uh, what they do with municipal. It's going to be going to be a fun ride. I have, I have a feeling. No question. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Catch you next time on the course record show.